Well, it's wonderful to be in the house of the Lord. We're going to take our sermon series to another level today. The title of my message today is From Acts to Azusa Street. From Acts to Azusa Street. And you remember uh, last week I talked about uh, the Acts 2 revival, the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that transpired in the book of Acts. Today, uh, I, I want to talk about the fact that there really have been two watershed revivals in history. And what I mean by watershed is that these are great turning points. These are turning points in which God is doing something by His Spirit. There's always uh, God initiating something by His Spirit, but then it's up to us to respond in the appropriate way. So Pentecost in Acts 2, that was the first watershed revival. That changed everything. The early church was born out of that revival. Uh, that revival really set in motion the events that led to the spread of Christianity around the world, the spread of the gospel. Not just the spread of the Christian religion, but the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of God all over the world. And we talked about last week, we talked about from Acts 2 to Acts 6. And in Acts 6, uh, you see uh, the solidification of what happened in Acts 2. Uh, so if you, weren't, if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to pick up that message. Uh, the second watershed revival was uh, Azusa Street in 1906. Azusa Street it was a little mission in Los Angeles, and we're going to talk about that today. So these two moves of the Holy Spirit were separated by about 1,900 years. So, And it doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit didn't do anything in those intervening years. There was a lot the Holy Spirit did, but these were two distinct revivals, and they had a lot in common, but there was also a lot that was different. They were separated by 1,900 years, but God's purpose in both of these revivals was the same. Okay, so God was trying to do something, and and uh, we're going to look, we're going to talk today a little bit about what God was trying to do. So Acts chapter two, just to recap from last week, verses one through four. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. I want to say preliminarily that the greatest mistake we can make in trying to understand what God was doing in the Acts 2 revival is to make it all about tongues. God was giving us more than the gift of tongues in the Acts 2 revival. Now, there's a significance to the Acts 2 revival. Uh, first of all, the Acts 2 outpouring of the Holy Spirit represented a new revelation of God. Now, in Exodus chapter 19, if you go all the way back, they're coming out of Egypt. And uh, after they leave Egypt, Passover, right? Passover, the uh, angel of death passes over. Excuse me. And uh, they, they pass through the Red Sea. And on the 47th day, they arrive at Mount Sinai. And then God says, sanctify the people for three days. Uh, here it is. Uh, then the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. So the, the, the third day was actually the 50th day after, they, after Passover. The 50th day after Passover. And that's why the Feast of Pentecost is called Pentecost. Pentecost is a Greek word that means 50. Pentecost is actually the Greek term for the feast. Uh, the feast was also called the Feast of the First Fruits. In, in Israel. Um, 
And so that 50th day marked a new revelation of God. God came down upon Mount Sinai in fire and enveloped the whole mountain. And there was fire and smoke and the sound of a trumpet and, and, um, and it was thunder and lightning and the voice of words. God speaks from the mountain and says, I am Yahweh Eloheinu who brought you out of Egypt on eagles' wings. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow down to them. You shall not worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And so what what happens is God reveals himself on the mountain, but the first thing he gives in that revelation is the law. This is, and the law is simply God saying, hi, this is who I am. Now, number two, here's how you walk with me. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow down to them. You shall not worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So Moses goes up to the mountain, and God writes the law in tablets of stone and gives them to Moses. Moses comes down. So the product of the revelation of God was the law written on tablets of stone. Pentecost, first of all, is a new revelation of God. But the character of the upper room in Acts chapter 2 is different from Sinai in a number of ways. First of all, the revelation of God at Sinai is external. You can't touch the mountain. You stand at the base of the mountain and look on at the revelation of God. You can't touch it. Matter of fact, God told Moses to put a boundary around the mountain so that no one could pass the boundary because if anyone touched the mountain, they would die. Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 in the upper room is an internal revelation of God. It's internal, not external. People are not watching it. The only people who are watching it are outside of the revelation. But now the mountain is the people. And the fire of God is coming upon not a physical mountain, but upon people. Wow. Right? So now people have become the mountain of the house of the Lord. It was the prophet that said, In the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be lifted up above all of the mountains. And it shall be raised up above all the seas, and the nation shall come to it. We are the mountain of the house of the Lord. That is, the mountain that God sets ablaze is the people of God now in the upper room. So it was an internal revelation rather than an external revelation. And it brought about a new law as well. So at Sinai, the law was written on tablets of stone, but in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 and following, the, God speak, the prophet speaks, or God speaks through the prophet and says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. He's talking about Moses in the Exodus. He's saying, I'm going to make a new covenant, but it's not going to be like the Mosaic covenant. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. Verse 33, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds, internal, and write it on their hearts, internal, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Right? And so the significance of Pentecost is not only that it was a new revelation that's internal rather than external, but it brought about a new law that's internal rather than external. Now the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus sets me free from the law of sin and death. And the law is written on my heart and in my mind, not on tablets of stone, which means that it is the convicting power of the Holy Spirit that sets the bar for me as to what is right and what is wrong. Meaning that if I walk in the spirit, I will not fulfill the desires of the sinful nature. And that's why, you know, people ask questions like, well, is it a sin to do such and such? Is it a sin? Well, the Bible doesn't explicitly say you're looking for it written on tablets of stone. What is the Holy Spirit saying to your heart? And the Holy, and it doesn't mean that there's no explicit things written in the New Testament that are right and wrong. That's there too, but they're written because they're obvious. It's like Paul is saying, all I really want to say to you is if you walk in the spirit, you won't do these things. But because you don't know how to walk in the spirit, I have to tell you, don't kill one another, right? Don't lie. Do not grieve the spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, right? And so, um, so yeah, there's this new, this new law 
that's written on the heart. And then it's a reversal of Babel. What happened in Babel in Genesis chapter 11 is that the people got together to, to create something that God was not pleased with. And so God scattered them by dividing their languages. In uh, Genesis chapter 11, verse 9, Therefore its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. So what happened at Babel is God divided them using language. What happens at Pentecost is God unites them using language. And so it's a reversal of Babel. He used language to divide, now he uses language to unite. And you have this gathering of Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Smyrnians, Mesopotamians, and all of these, these foreigners gathered together. And then you have this 120 country bumpkins up in the upper room. They're all Jerusalem you know, Jews who all speak Hebrew. But all of a sudden, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the culture gap is filled. The language gap is filled. The distance between one ethnos, one, one people group and another, one ethnicity and another is bridged by the power of the Holy Spirit. So now they're all speaking. And this is what the gathering crowd says. Are, are not all these men Jews, Judeans? How is it that we hear them all speaking in our languages the mighty works of God? It's because the power of the Holy Spirit brought together. And this third piece is what's so important. This third piece is really what helps us understand the most prominent feature of Pentecost. The most prominent feature of Pentecost was not tongues. Tongues was the tool that produced a goal, and the goal was to unify a diverse gathering of peoples that had nothing in common except the Holy Spirit. That there was this outpouring of the Spirit that brought together people who were naturally divided brought together people who saw things differently, had different values, came from different places, had different cultures, spoke different languages, but the Holy Spirit bridges the gap and brings them all together. And that is always the purpose of revival, to bring together that which is naturally separated, to work unity as a work of the Spirit of God. All right, now let's look at Azusa Street. I want to give you a timeline of Azusa Street. And we talked last week about how they actually did this right in the book of Acts. Uh, but we're going to look at actually how they did this wrong at Azusa Street. All right, I'm going to give you just a brief timeline of what happened in the Azusa Street Revival. For those of you who don't know or who don't understand what the Azusa Street Revival actually is, I want to just spend a few minutes um, giving you some background so you understand it. So in the year 1900, there was this guy named Charles Fox Parham. He was an evangelist. He was actually, he thought of himself as like a John the Baptist figure. He would do these like huge um, public meetings. Like he would go from town to town, city to city. He had an entourage with him and he would wear this camel skin cloak. And he thought of himself as like an Elijah or like a, a John the Baptist type figure, figure. And he would come in and do mass evangelism, outdoor mass crowds, city to city, preaching the gospel. Well, he started a little Bible college in Topeka, Kansas. And uh, this is um, the holiness movement. So you had the Wesleyan Methodist movement uh, in the mid-1700s. And then in the 1800s and late 1800s, you had the holiness movement that explodes. And the holiness movement, they talked a lot about the baptism and the Holy Spirit. But for the holiness movement, the baptism and the Holy Spirit was sanctification. It was an experience called sanctification, an experience in which God washed away your sins. Like you literally experienced the washing away of your sins. And so there was this, this concept of the double cure that, we, that goes back to John Wesley. The double cure was salvation plus sanctification. 
And what Wesley observed is that there were many believers who would come to Christ, say the sinner's prayer, and invite Jesus to come into their life and be Savior and Lord, but their lives would not change. And so he observed they were saved but not sanctified. They had a profession of faith, but they did not break free of their sins. And so Wesley and the Methodists, they produced this discipleship pathway that had repentance at the core of it. And, and they had this thing called the mourner's bench, and especially in the holiness movement. Basically, if you had a, a, um, a besetting sin or a persistent sin that you could not break, even though you are now a believer in Jesus Christ, you would go to the mourner's bench on Sunday at the service, and you would, you would cry out to God and beg his forgiveness and cry upon him, call upon him for mercy. And, and ask him to sanctify you and make you clean. And, and uh, people would spend all night at the mourner's bench. The concept was you stay there until you get clean. And people would cry out to God all night. And, and then they would have these experiences where the Holy Spirit would come upon them. And they would feel the Holy Spirit purging them and, and setting them free from their besetting sins. And they would literally walk clean. And they would walk pure. And so there was this crisis event or crisis experience called sanctification that the Wesleyan Methodist movement and the holiness movement championed. And there was this concept that you had to seek God for it. You had to, you had to persist in prayer until you received the double cure or what was called the second blessing, the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Um, there are so many uh, holiness uh, figures like Phoebe Palmer and so forth. Phoebe Palmer, she had this concept that the altar sanctifies the gift. And so Whatever you lay on the altar and submit to God, he sanctifies. And so the whole concept is just surrendering all to God. And that, 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 those concepts, they continue with us to the present day. All right. So um, Charles Fox Parham in his little Bible college in Topeka, Kansas. Uh, by the way, am I talking too fast? I got a lot to get out today, but I hope I'm not, uh, I hope I'm not talking too fast. I'm good, baby? Thank you. All right. Back to Parham. So... Uh, he, start, he studies the book of Acts, and he has this revelation, this awakened idea that actually what happened in the book of Acts when they were baptized in the Holy Spirit was not an experience that they called sanctification. But the baptism in the Holy Spirit, the first fruits of it was that they spoke in other tongues as the Spirit gave utterance. Now, you got to understand that in the 1800s, it was not common to find people who spoke in tongues. Matter of fact, there were maybe only a few people in the 1800s total who actually spoke in tongues. The gift of tongues was not widespread. Uh, the gift of tongues was very rare, actually. Um, and it had been very rare, really, since the patristic age. So you're talking about probably about a 1,500-year period in which the gift of tongues was not a widespread phenomenon at all, so much so that, by and large, most Christians believed that it was no more that God no, no longer gave that gift, and many were teaching explicitly that the gift of tongues and all of the miraculous gifts of the Spirit ceased yeah. at the end of the first century. Charles Fox Parham, though, he's studying Acts 2, and he believes that that's not the case and that God wants to restore this and many other uh, miraculous gifts to the church. Yeah. And so he begins to teach this to his little Bible college in 1900. And in 1901, on January 1st, actually early in the morning, just after midnight, uh, Parham has this prayer meeting and one of his students named Agnes Osman is filled with the Holy Spirit and she speaks in other tongues as the Spirit gave utterance and that's the beginning of of this movement that we call Pentecostalism. However, from uh, from Topeka, Kansas in 1905, uh, Charles Fox Parham moves his Bible college to Houston, Texas. And in Houston, Texas, there's this guy named William Joseph Seymour. Now Seymour 
was a black gentleman. He was half blind, son of a former slave. Uh, he was born in 1870. And um, he wants to study under Charles Fox Parham. He actually was a part of the Church of God Anderson, Indiana, which at that time was called the Evening Light Saints. They were a holiness group. And, uh, but he, he's not allowed, in, in Texas at that time, it was illegal for a black man to sit in a classroom with white people. So there was, integration was illegal. But Charles Fox Parham wanted Seymour to be able to study at his Bible college, so what he did was he left the door open and allowed Seymour to sit outside the door. And so Seymour sat outside the door of Parham's classroom and studied under him and learned this doctrine of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. So that's in 1905. Now in early 1906, uh, late March, I believe, 1906, uh, Seymour is invited to preach at this little holiness mission in Los Angeles. And uh, he had enough money for a one-way train ticket from Houston to Los Angeles. And he goes into this mission and he preaches the first sermon on Acts chapter 2. And he preaches that God is going to restore the gift of tongues to the church. And at the end of that meeting, he's ousted. His, the rest of his revival is canceled. And the pastor padlocks the door and puts up a sign and says the revival is canceled. So now Seymour, he's penniless. He doesn't have a dime to his name. He's got no way to get back to Houston. And he's, he's basically destitute and stranded. Well, there was a, a gentleman by the name of Edward Lee who took Seymour into his home. And... Uh, Edward Lee says, uh, can we just pray together and let's just see what God will do. And so every evening they would get on their knees in the living room and they would pray and they would pray just for hours. And sometimes they would pray all night long and early in the morning Edward Lee would get up and go to his job. He worked at a bank and Seymour would remain on his knees. And uh, for five years prior to this, Seymour had been praying five hours a day. But now he started praying seven hours a day. And so word started to spread that there was this praying man who was standing at the, staying at the home of Edward Lee. And people started talking about this guy, he just prays for hours and hours every day. And so um, Richard and Ruth Asbury, who lived on Bonnie Bray Street, actually very close by to where Edward Lee uh, lived, uh, in early April, they invited Seymour to come and uh, host a prayer meeting at their house. And so uh, April 9th, 1906, Seymour is leading a prayer meeting at their house, and uh, two things happen. One, Edward Lee is baptized in the Holy Spirit. I mean, the Holy Spirit comes on him, bam, he hits the floor, and boom, he's speaking in other tongues. And then he goes over and lays hands on a young lady by the name of Jenny Moore. And uh, Jenny Moore is baptized in the Holy Spirit. She hits the floor, bam, the Holy Spirit just overwhelms her. She hits the floor, bam, she's speaking in tongues. And so now word is spreading through the neighborhood, and so people start coming. Very quickly, it became multi-ethnic. Very, at first, it just started with a few black people in the home of Richard and Ruth Asbury. And then some white people start coming. Wow. And, within a few, and so every night after that, more and more people filled the house to where they had to go out on the porch. And within less than a week, the whole front yard was filled with hundreds of people. The porch was filled, and the whole house was filled, and Seymour's preaching, and the power of God is falling, and people are being baptized in the Holy Spirit everywhere. And it's white, black, Asian, Latino. As Frank Bartleman would later say, the color line was washed away in the blood of the Lamb. Nobody cared what color you were. God was moving, and there was just this sense that the Holy Spirit was moving, and that this outpouring of the Holy Spirit was happening. And God was showing up and meeting people in powerful ways. Well, within less than a week, the porch collapsed under the weight of all the people. 
And so they went downtown onto Azusa Street and they found this little, used to be a stable. And uh, there were horses in there, there was, there was a, a straw on the floor. And they rented the place and they swept it clean and they brought in benches and they moved the revival there. And they started having these, these meetings um, at the Azusa Street, they called it the Azusa Street Mission. And within less than a month, more than a thousand people a night were gathering in this place. And they were having services three times a day. Not, we're not talking about you know, every night for two weeks. We're talking about three times a day for three years. Wow. Morning, noon, and night. And every meeting would last hours as the power of the Holy Spirit was falling. Right? So and people are coming from all over the world. Word, word is spreading far and wide that God is doing something at Azusa Street. And people are coming from all over the world to see it. So it's absolutely phenomenal. Well, if you, if you think of the import of that movement that started there at Azusa Street today, more than 600 million people around the world have experienced the baptism in the Holy Spirit. So if you go back to 1905, there might have been six people in the world, maybe, who spoke in tongues. Now there's more than 600 million. I've heard numbers as high as 900 million around the world who speak in tongues. Literally close to a billion people at, you know, about a tenth of the world's population, let's say, has been touched by that revival, that outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now, I, I just want you to stop and just get a, get a feel for this. Imagine a move of the Holy Spirit that touches 10% of the world's population. I mean, that is absolutely crazy, and that's awesome. But what's the problem? I mean, if, if the move of the Spirit touched 10% of the world's population, what's the problem? Shouldn't we just rejoice and say, man, that's awesome, God did his thing? Yeah. The questions are, why did Seymour die in obscurity in 1922 with only a few black followers left in his mission? Wow. I mean, you're talking about a guy who led the most important revival movement yeah. in the world, wow. and he dies alone, wow. and he dies alone 15 years later wow. with 12 disciples. And his obituary is in the back of the paper. Nobody even notices that the greatest revivalist in the history of the church since Acts chapter 2 just died. Wow. Nobody cares. How does that happen? Why did the multi-ethnic movement turn into a new segregated denominational babble? Wow. Wow. Jesus. By 1909, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit that was multi-ethnic, and Bartleman says the color line was washed away in the blood of the Lamb. By 1909, it's redrawn. Wow. How did we end up redrawing the color line where all of a sudden you had all of these denominations coming out of Azusa Street wow. and they're all segregated? They're separated by color. Yeah. How did this move of the Holy Spirit that brought all the nations together turn back into a babel that separated the nations? Do you realize that the earliest Pentecostal movements that came out of Azusa Street wrote into their bylaws that no black man shall ever obtain membership in their denomination? Mercy. You realize that? And do you realize in 1911, even Seymour himself wrote into the bylaws of the Azusa Street mission that no white man shall ever serve on the board of directors of his church? How did that happen? How did we get there? And the third question is why to this day is Sunday morning still the most segregated hour of the week? See, it, this is an indictment of the body of Christ. Yeah. It is so easy for us to look at the world and say, the problem is those sinners out there in the world. Yeah. 
The problem is never the sinners out there in the world. God said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. If we want God to heal our land, we've got to stop and look inwardly and say, what has happened to the body of Christ? Why do we not know how to respond to the Spirit of God? And why do we tend to gloss over our own sins and focus on the sin of the world? Here's why. Number one, fear. There was a white woman who was the administrative genius behind the Azusa Street movement. So you could say Seymour was the spiritual genius behind it. He was the voice. And actually, a lot of white historians have, gone, have taken pains to diminish the leadership role of Seymour in the Azusa Street uh, revival. A friend of mine, Dr. Charles Fox, actually wrote a dissertation recently on Seymour and the Azusa Street Mission. You should check out his book. Um, but Charles says uh, a lot of white historians have taken pains to actually call Azusa Street, the, the Azusa Street Revival, a movement without a man. They literally try to write him out of it. It was just governed by the Holy Spirit. There was no person who took leadership. No, uh, Seymour took great leadership. He was a spiritual genius behind the movement. But Seymour was in love with Clara Loom. Clara Loom was in love with Seymour. Clara Loom, she created the mailing list. She created the newsletter. And every month, the news, or every week, the newsletter would go out. I don't know if it was every week or every, every month, but the newsletter would go out all over the world. Clara Loom was a stenographer, and she would just write down the accounts of what was happening what the Holy Spirit was doing. Upstairs in the Azusa Street movement, they had a room filled with crutches and walkers and, and like all these people were being healed and they were leaving their crutches and their walkers behind. And they had a room full of them and Clara Loom was just, uh, just writing down all those miracles that were taking place. And she was dictating the sermons that Seymour was preaching and, and she was crafting it into a newsletter and sending it all the, over the world. And people were coming from all over the world to see the revival and the money was coming in and the people were coming in and the revival was alive. And Seymour wanted to marry Clara Loom, and Clara Loom wanted to marry Seymour. They were in love with each other. Matter of fact, there's, photo, there's, there's at least one photo where you can see the affection. They're standing side by side, and you can see the affection in their eyes toward one another. Seymour goes to his friend, and uh, Bishop Mason, actually, who was the founder of the Church of God in Christ, which to this day is the largest African-American denomination in the world. And um, he goes to Bishop Mason, and he asks for his counsel, what should I do? And Mason says, don't you marry that white woman. The world is not ready for that yet. Seymour was afraid. There was fear. What will happen if, I, if we actually take a step to break this color line? Wow. What will happen if we, actually, if we actually extrapolate the meaning of this movement? God has washed away the color line. What if we act in our everyday lives outside of the church as if God has actually washed away the color line? Because till then, what was actually happening was that inside of the church, inside of the movement, when you come into the meeting, the color line is washed away. But as soon as the meeting was over, everyone would go back to their white communities, their black communities, their Latin communities, their Asian communities, and the color line would be redrawn outside of the church. And so there was this experience of the Holy Spirit but there was not the effort, the endeavor to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That is, the Holy Spirit was creating unity, 
but nothing was being done to maintain it, to extrapolate it beyond the walls of the church. And so Seymour, he made a mistake here. Instead of marrying Clara Loom, he starts to court Miss Jenny Moore. Now remember, uh, we talked about the two things that happened on April 9th in the home of Richard and Ruth Asbury. First was Lee Edwards is baptized in the Holy Spirit. The second was Jenny Moore was baptized in the Holy Spirit. And when Seymour starts to court her and then they get engaged, Clara Loom became jealous and she and Florence Crawford, who was another important pioneer of the, the movement, they leave, they move away and they go start their own work, I believe in Texas somewhere. But here's the problem. Clara Loom took, she took with her, she took the mailing list and she took the newsletter. All of the gifts that she brought to the movement, she took with her. She said, I'm out. And because the mailing list left with her, the newsletter stopped going out. Because the newsletter stopped going out, the movement stopped. She actually began to use that newsletter and that mailing list for her own movement in another state. So first there was fear, but secondly there was jealousy. Not only Clara Loom's jealousy of Miss Jenny, but within a couple of years, different white people started to, different white men started to try to take over the movement and oust Seymour as the pastor. So first was Parham. They brought him in in October of, of uh, 1906. So this is just six months into the revival. They bring him in and Seymour saw him as his spiritual father. Well, he came in and he had these racist attitudes. He saw uh, white women falling into the hands of black men and he said it made him sick to his stomach. And so he starts separating the, the races. And then he, he saw all of this Holy Spirit activity and he said it was out of order and out of control. And uh, the Holy Spirit stopped moving as, as Parham came in and started separating the ethnicities. He came in and tried to segregate the movement. So Seymour and his elders had to give Charles Fox Parham the right foot of fellowship. I can't imagine how difficult that must have been for Seymour. He had to throw out his own spiritual father because he was desecrating what God was doing. And when Parham was thrown out, the, mood, the Holy Spirit began to fall again and the mingling of the, the, the ethnic groups began to happen again. And so Parham went out and started to blast the movement in all of his white circles and, and um, denigrate it. And then you got this guy named William Durham. This is a few years later, William Durham. Uh, Seymour has him come and lead a revival. Uh, Seymour was out traveling, ministering somewhere. And uh, William Durham, he was actually a finished work guy. They had a, he had a different uh, theology than, than uh, Seymour. Uh, anyway, Durham, at the end of his revival, he saw that a lot more people were coming to the services because by this time, the revival had died down. Less and less people were coming. The whole movement was dwindling. Well, he saw that through his preaching, more and more people were coming to the revival. And so in his last message in the last night, he said, by a show of hands, how many of you would rather have me as your pastor than Seymour? And guess what happened? The white people in the room said yes, but the Azusa faithfuls who were mostly black by that time shouted him down and said no. And Seymour had to come back and uh, the white people began to um, basically criticize the black people and say, you black people 
uh, you're fine as long as you have a black pastor and, and so on and so forth. I should have my friend Dr. Charles Fox come and explain and kind of lecture on this and teach on what happens at this time. But this had happened so many times that Seymour met with his elders and he wrote into his bylaws that no white man shall ever serve on the board of trustees at the Azusa Street Mission. So now racism begets fear. So in the black members, there's fear. In the white members, there's jealousy and racism. Yeah. And what these, the, and this, this is the crazy thing. Yeah. You would think in the midst of this outpouring of the Holy Spirit yeah. that some sanctification would take place in the heart. Yes. Sanctification was happening for people, but it was breaking smoking and drinking. It was breaking uh, uh, fornication and adultery. You know, it was breaking rage and anger, but it wasn't breaking racism. Wow. Like there was no confrontation. There was no, oh, these people are receiving the Holy Spirit, but they're not waking up and saying, wait a minute. I think God is trying to tell us that the dividing line between us is false. It's demonic. It's, it's not only man-made, but it's demonic. It's a doctrine of demons. Like there should have been an awakening amongst those individuals and especially the white members there to wake up and say, you know what? The, the hypocrisy of the American church that has excluded you, that has made you other and, and separated you is a lie. And we're going to fight. We're going to fight for your inclusion and for your, you know, for our oneness. Yeah, yeah. But for some reason, the hearts of those individuals was guarded even from the Holy Spirit. That there was this wall that said, Holy Spirit, you can take away my drinking, you can take away my cursing, you can take away my adultery, you can take away my drug addiction, you can take away, you know, all of these things, but don't touch my racism. Wow. You can't have my racism. Matter of fact, there was this sense that they didn't even know that they were racist. They didn't even know. See, this is the pervasiveness of sin. Sin cannot be personally detected. It must be revealed. Only the Holy Spirit can reveal sin. Secondly, the Holy Spirit reveals sin through humility. If I have the humility to open my heart to the Holy Spirit and let him reveal to me the error of my ways, the Holy Spirit is able to reveal my sin. And for some reason, there was this unwillingness in the hearts and minds of the individuals at Azusa Street to open their hearts to the Holy Spirit. And what happened was, the meaning of the movement, the meaning of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at that hour became individualized. Wow. It's about the individual experience of the Holy Spirit. It's about laughing, it's about falling, it's about speaking in tongues, it's about shaking, it's about prophesying, it's about laying hands on the sick and healing them. It's about all of these things when underneath it what the Holy Spirit was trying to do was something much bigger, wow. something corporate. And all of those things were actually tools that the Holy Spirit was using to try to bring about a renewed unity, a new Pentecost that would bring together the Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Smyrnians, Mesopotamians, and all of the people that were gathered there in Azusa Street. Wow. The new Pentecost turned into a new Babel. Wow. And all of a sudden, we divided back into our nations and our tribes. We divided back, and we divided according to the color of our skin. And we could not see how heinous and how grieving to the Spirit of God it was that we would take something so precious and racialize it. Wow. 
Here's why this is important for us to know today. God is preparing to send a new move of the Spirit, but we must be diligent to respond as He intends. You see, America in general has adopted a theology that is highly individualized. Salvation is about you, the individual. And we don't understand that Jesus actually, Jesus, he expected cities to repent. He did not simply expect individuals to repent. He expected cities to repent. Just read the woes of Jesus. Woe to you. And he named all these cities. He said, if the miracles done in you were done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. But Tyre and Sidon will rise up in the day of judgment and condemn you. Right? Jesus expected regions, but in order for cities to repent, in order for regions to repent, there must be an identification that is larger than the individual. And this is what I'm going to talk about tonight. I want to get you ready for tonight because tonight is going to be an important message because there is a prophetic word to America that if America does not heed at this hour, the judgment of God is going to fall heavy upon it. And, but we're not going to hear that word if we're thinking only me, the individual. Remember Jesus comes to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus and says, why do you persecute me? Wow. And Saul says, who are you, Lord, that I per- I don't persecute you. It wasn't me. Remember Jesus says to the Pharisees, which one of the prophets did your fathers not kill? Like, I never killed a prophet. There's this individual vindication. It wasn't me. I didn't do it. Wow. It wasn't me. Not realizing, and Saul sees it at the end in, in, in Acts twenty two twenty, he confesses to the Lord, I didn't throw a stone at Stephen. I didn't kill him, but I guarded the coats of those who did. Wow. I was complicit. And so the Holy Spirit wants to reveal our corporate complicity in the evil of our day. And until we become aware of our corporate complicity in the evils of our day, we have not truly repented. Because we've self-vindicated, we've vindicated ourselves of the broader corporate sins of our land and confessed only our individual sins. Lord, I, I smoked and I drank and I chewed and I went with girls who, whatever. <sighs> okay, that's enough of that for now. Number two, he sends revival not just for mass salvation and personal experience, but to make us one. They missed it at Azusa Street. And we're crying out for a new Azusa Street. We're crying out for a new Acts 2. We're crying out for a new Pentecost. But are our hearts actually open for God to reverse Babel and renew Pentecost? Wow. If God gave us another outpouring of the Spirit like He gave at Pentecost, like He gave at Azusa Street, would we produce a new Babel out of it? Would we find a way to divide? Would we find a way to separate ourselves? Would we be moved by fear or jealousy or offense and separate ourselves? Breaking back up into our ethnicities, our tribes, our tongues, our nations? Or would we become a picture of what heaven is like? You see, the Azusa Street Mission was the first multi-ethnic church in America. And it was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that created that but it didn't last. Within a period of three years, fear, jealousy, and racism turned it into a new Babel. And for that, 
we must repent. We cannot vindicate ourselves. We cannot exclude ourselves. We cannot say, as, as the people of Jesus' day would say, man, if I were around, I wouldn't have killed the prophets. No, I would, I would, that would not have been me. Neither can we say, if I were at Azusa Street, I wouldn't have participated in that new Babel. What's different? What's changed? Have we removed the guardrails from our heart? You see, all of us have these places in our hearts where we've said, you can't come any further than this, Holy Spirit. You know, at, at Sinai, God put the barrier around the mountain and said, don't come any closer. But in Pentecost, he takes away the barrier and says, come on up. But it's we who put the barrier around our own hearts and say, don't come any closer, God. Don't touch this area of my heart. Don't touch my politics. Self-vindication. And the only way we are going to be prepared in our hearts and minds for the new move of the Holy Spirit that is certainly coming is if we break free from self-vindication. And I'm, I'm not just talking to white people right now. Each and every one of us. Because if there's one thing I've been convicted of in my own heart is that there's areas of complicity in me where I have been complicit to injustice, I've been complicit to division, and I've been complicit to creating a new Babel. It's always in all of us. And the question is, are we going to prepare our hearts for the new move of the Spirit, that there's a new John the Baptist anointing, that God is, the Spirit of God is crying out, prepare the way of the Lord. And I know some of you are just tired of me talking about race. You're like, I just can't wait till we get back to the old living hope where we, we just, it would just hit sang kumbaya and we didn't talk about these issues. Let me tell you something. This is what the Holy Spirit is doing. And if you separate your heart from it, you're going to separate your heart from what the Holy Spirit is getting ready to do in the earth. And I, I'm challenging you to stay present. I'm, I'm challenged, and I want to challenge that spirit that would tell you, this has nothing to do with me. This is irrelevant to me. I'm not a part of this. I'm Asian. This is between white and black. I'm white, but I go to a, a mixed church, so it has nothing to do with me. I'm not racist at all. I'm black, and so I'm just the, I'm just the recipient of it. So it has nothing to do with me. That is, that's the lie of the devil. The devil wants to exclude you. We all have our part to play. Yeah. And we all have the responsibility to open our hearts and say, God, it's me. Would you reach into the depths of my heart and set me free? Would you locate that barrier in my heart that I don't even see where I've put a wall around you and said, God, you can't touch this place in my heart. And would you heal me in that place? Set me free. Convict me in that place. And produce in me a new repentance. And set me free from whatever fear that I have of crossing boundaries, of breaking taboos. Set me free of the fear And give me faith and courage in Jesus' mighty name. And so, Father, I pray, baby, if you could make your way over here with me. Father, I pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would speak to every heart and you would speak to every mind and you would speak to every soul. And, Father, that you would make known to us the good pleasure of your will. Father, I pray for a new outpouring of the Holy Spirit mm. that brings about repentance in this nation. I pray for a, I pray for a John the Baptist anointing to prepare the way of the Lord, to make straight paths for his feet, 
to cry out, to be a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And Lord, even as John the Baptist confronted the wickedness and evil of his day, I pray, Father, that you would raise up those at this hour and press your word to their lips like a trumpet, O God. And let the, let the clarion call of righteousness sound forth in this land that, God, you are doing a work in us and that we would silence our ears to it. But Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear. I pray that you would give us ears to hear and give us minds to understand and hearts to believe and give us a will to act. I pray it in Jesus' precious holy name. Amen. Baby, what do you want to do? Yeah, we just um, lay before God your own hearts right now. Father, we lay before you, God, our own fears, Maybe even those areas that we are not aware of. Areas that we're, we're very fragile, where we feel very uh, sensitive, Lord, where we feel anxious when we approach certain topics. Father, we lay before you our own walls, God, our own hearts, God. And we pray right now, God, Holy Spirit, that you will work in our own hearts first, Lord. Set us free from the things that makes us anxious and be afraid, Lord. God, the work that you must do, God, so that as your church, as your body, God, that we could partake in what you are doing to make us one, to make your church one, to remove the, 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 the lines of the colors, God, to make us truly yes, kingdom, mm. body of Christ. God, yes, God, if there's anything in my own heart, in our own heart, God, that 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 blocks your work, Father. We lay it before you, Holy Spirit. Work in my heart, work in our hearts right now, God. Bring it, God. Shine your light, God. We want to say yes to what you are doing. The the new move, the move of the Holy Spirit, where you want to make your church one. We say yes. Wherever you're at, can you say yes to that? Can, can your spirit say, yes, Lord, make us one. Make us one. Father, remove judgments out of our own hearts, God. Pointing out and judging. But God, remove, 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 God, the walls in my own heart. And we say, yes, make us one. Do the work, Lord. Make us one, God. Make us one, God. We want to honor your heart. We want to honor your heart. We want to say yes to your move, God. Mm. In, Jesus In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.